and, and conduct of would-be disciples. He gets to that point here. Let's read now from verse 1. We'll read to verse 12 for now. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. O God, as we come to this wonderful passage of your word, we ask that you'd give us wisdom, that you'd give us insight, and that you would, you would just prompt us by your Holy Spirit and help us, give us eyes to see the wonder of your gospel, the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, and all that there is here for us in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last time I shared with you the amazing story of Andrew Murray and the legacy that he left, the influence that he had within his family. And you will remember that five of his six sons became ministers of the gospel. Four of his daughters became ministers' ministers' wives. Ten grandsons became ministers. And 13 grandchildren became missionaries. Amazing. What a legacy this man left as he ministered in South Africa to so many different people in all these different churches. And I'm sure if you have grandchildren, as I do, and Tammy and I had the privilege to be able to spend the day yesterday with our grandchildren in Edmonton as we flew back later last evening. But it is a prayer that, of course, we would have for our grandchildren, that they would be pastors, that they would be missionaries. But most importantly, wherever the Lord calls them, If he doesn't call them to those faraway fields or to be a minister of the gospel, that wherever he calls them, that they will be a shining light for the Lord Jesus Christ wherever they are. That is a prayer that all of us would have for our children, for our grandchildren, that they would be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, disciples of the Lord, that they would follow him. And tonight I want to share with you another amazing man from Scotland, and I want you to try to guess who this is as I unfold a bit of a a one-minute biography of who this is. I'm sure many of you will know by the time we get to the end of it. But this man from Scotland grew up in the Presbyterian Church of Scotland. He landed on the shores of Cape Town, South Africa in 1841, and he is another man of amazing influence. When he arrived on the shores of South Africa, after, after a little while, he was actually attacked by a lion. And his arm was, his left arm was chewed up pretty good and it hindered him all of his life. That arm would bother him his entire life. But he is an amazing man of great influence. He went on to be an explorer and he discovered various trades routes between Africa and England. He was also an abolitionist and the British government ended the Arab slave trade largely because of his efforts. And he was a missionary. Wherever he went, the gospel went. Isn't that a wonderful thing to say about someone? Wherever he went, the gospel went. Is that the case with us? Wherever we go, that the gospel is going with us, that we are shining lights for the Lord Jesus Christ, examples 
of what it means to be a believer. But that is what we see in this man here. And he had a tremendous influence and impact as he continued preaching, evangelizing, setting up mission stations, exploring Africa. And he was much loved by the people of Africa. Now, what was his name? Yes, David Livingston, that is correct. And one day in his journal, Livingston wrote this, I will place no value on anything I have or may possess except in relation to the kingdom of Christ. It's an amazing, profound statement. Everything, his focus, his life's focus was the kingdom of Christ. How am I going to advance the kingdom of Christ with all that I have and all that I am? Now, can we say that? Has that been our focus and aim in life, that with everything that we have and all that we are, whatever God provides for us, it is the advancing kingdom of Christ, seeing his name proclaimed, that is first and foremost at the top of our minds. What an influence he had. And that is exactly what we see in the Lord Jesus Christ, because the Lord Jesus Christ had a tremendous influence. We all know that. He's had a tremendous impact in our own hearts. And we see that those people that he influences, he wants them in turn to go and influence others. That's what we see in Livingston. That's what we see in others. And that's what we see in many, many of you sitting here, that that is your goal and aim, to be an influencer for the Lord Jesus Christ, to advance the kingdom of Christ. And we saw last time when we look at the Beatitudes, how they build upon each other how the one unfolds and unpacks the other as we go along through the Beatitudes. So if you cast your eyes back to verse 3, being poor in spirit, seeing ourselves as spiritually bankrupt, spiritually impoverished, that leads to the second Beatitude, to mourn over our sinful condition in verse 4. And if you recognize that you are poverty-stricken spiritually and you are mourning over your sin, that you have no hope of your own, no claim of righteousness of your own, It causes us to mourn over our sinful condition and that brings not pride, but humility, a meekness about us. Verse 5, and then you start developing a hunger and a thirsting after righteousness. That is what we see with the people of God. We have a new appetite. We have new cravings. Something is different. The old has passed away. The new has come and we are craving new spiritual food that we never had before. And so we could go on and on through the Beatitudes. The one builds on the other. And that's what it looks like to be a Christian in the Beatitudes. That is what the Christian life should look like for us. And for those who live that way, what can they expect? Well, verses 10 to 12 tell us they can expect some opposition. Some persecution is going to result from living this way. Suffering is simply a reality of the Christian life. We are going to face persecution when we live that way. But Jesus says, rejoice. And be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. And it's not small, it's great. It's a great reward that he has for us. Nothing done for the glory of God is going to go without reward. And so how do we connect that to what we're going to look at now? If we connect verses 1 through 12, and then we look at verses 13 to 16 here, we see what kind of influence a Christian should have in verses 13 to 16. And we could read those verses about persecution and we could think the result should be to flee, to get away. None of us wants to be persecuted. Most of us don't like conflict. We want to move away from conflict and persecution. But that's not what Jesus has for us. That's not what Jesus says. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Let's read on from verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. 
But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So we see here in these four verses that Jesus goes on to tell Christians what type of influence they should have in this world for the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's connecting these passages. He's connecting the Beatitudes and this description here of persecution. Then he's saying you are not to flee. You're not to try to get away from this. You are to confront it. You are to be a light in the midst of it. You are to, to, to be salt on the earth. And so often we want to fight or we want to flight, but that's not what Jesus says here for us to do. You're, he says, no, I'm not going to allow that. You have to be salt and light in the world. And even though we have this temptation to flee and to run, and we, we might want to withdraw from society, we might want to build our own Christian commune somewhere or just have a cabin out in the woods just to escape the entire world, what would happen if every Christian did that? Every Christian just vacated cities, churches like this, every church that preaches the gospel, everyone just went and they fleed to the country. They built a cabin up in the Yukon somewhere. Yeah, we are not being light at that point and we are not being salt at that point. That is not what the Lord Jesus wants us to do. The citizens of his kingdom play a very important role in this world. We are necessary in this world. And it reminds us that being followers of Jesus Christ is not just for our benefit. God doesn't just save us, be good to us throughout our lives, and then we spend eternity in heaven with him. Again, people that he influences, he wants them to go and influence other people. We are to make an impact. We are to have an influence. And part of the reason God has worked in your life is to do that very thing, to make an impact in the world around you, in your own spheres, in your own world, your own family world, your own extended family, people at school, at work, wherever you might be. That is where God wants you to be at work. He's put you in this world at this particular time, in this particular place, to have and to make an impact. And we might want to run right off the world and just be done with it and flee and get away, but that is not what the Lord wants for us. And that is the very essence of that quote from David Livingston, where he says, I will place no value on anything I have or may possess except in relation to the kingdom of Christ. Livingston didn't flee to Africa to escape. He was going to Africa to fulfill the calling the Lord had for him to be that shining light and to be salt in a dark, dark place. And so the first illustration we see here in verse 13 is that that Jesus calls us the salt of the earth. He uses, he says that we are to be engaged with the world as salt. Now, what does that mean? What does being salt in this world mean? What does the salt of the earth mean? When you look at the commentaries, there's many various descriptions of what it is. Some commentators are going to go on and on about six or 10 or 12 different ways in which we can be salt. And when we look at those things, we can see that there is spiritual application application and validity in some of those things that, it, that they say. 
uh, but they often don't get to the primary way. Some of them do, or some of them take a roundabout way to get there. And I just want to unpack a couple of different ways that when we think of salt, what comes to our mind, what comes to uh, the commentator's mind as they're talking about salt. When we say the word salt, obviously you're going to think of table salt. You're going to think of that salt shaker that you have when you're having dinner, something that's going to add flavor to your meal. And some of us put salt on food before we even tasted it. That's how much we love and enjoy salt. We just get the salt shaker right away and put salt on it because we love the taste of the salt. It enhances the flavor of that food that we are eating. Food that tastes bland, and has no flavor to it, you add salt to it, and and it tastes much better. Could you imagine a McDonald's French fry without salt? It'd be terrible. But that's what we do. We salt these foods to make things uh, taste much better. And the spiritual application there in some people's mind would would be that we, as the people of God, are bringing out the flavor of life, the true, the way life should be. We are living a Christian life, and we bring out the flavor of life. And something else about salt is that it creates thirst. If you eat those McDonald's French fries too late in the evening, you're going to wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning and want a glass of water because they're so salty. But salt brings thirst. We want to drink something while we are having something that might be overly salty. And so if we have salt in our lives... And, 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 and if it is doing its job in our, our lives, it should make those around us thirsty. Thirsty for spiritual nourishment. Thirsty for the word of God, to know God. And so God would have his people live and testify before the world and others in a way that is going to be able to combat that spiritual dehydration that they experience. Now, something else about salt. Salt was very, very uh, expensive. It was a very... Um, valuable commodity in the ancient world and sometimes roman soldiers would even be paid with salt they'd receive a bag of salt as their wages that's how precious it was back in those days and so is jesus saying that you are precious like salt is precious no that's not what he is saying you may well be precious to him and that is a good thing to think of that we are precious to the lord the steadfast love of the lord is ours forever the psalmist tells us And he may number every hair of our head. And when we lay down our head for the last time and we take our last breath, we will see that precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. So we are precious to God, absolutely. But that's not the primary meaning of what we see here when Jesus talks about us being the salt of the earth, though all of those different ways have spiritual applications that we could look at. Now, if we go back to David Livingston, he died of malaria in 1873. And at the, age of six, at the age of 60 in Zambia. Now the British wanted his remains to bring them back to, to bury him at Westminster Abbey. The Africans wanted him to be buried there. And so they had a bit of a conflict there of what they were going to do with David Livingston's body. And so what ended up happening was that they buried his heart in Zambia. They took the rest of his body to Westminster Abbey to bury him in London. Now in those days to go on a ship from from South Africa or Africa to to England, it was three or four months. Now, could you imagine a body, what kind of state it would be in three or four months? So what did they do? They packed his body in salt, completely preserved throughout the journey so they could bury him. 
at Westminster Abbey. Of course, back then in Jesus' time, of course, they didn't have refrigerators and freezers and all the other means that we have to preserve things. They used salt to do that. And things would would decompose. They would decay if they didn't use salt to preserve things. And sometimes it would be a water and 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 a salt mixture that they would soak the meat in to preserve it so that it would have that, that's, that, that it would last a long time. And even today I hear that this continues to happen in some parts of Africa, in that nation. Sinclair Ferguson said that he went there a number of years ago and he'd eaten some meat that was several weeks old and it never was refrigerated or freezered, nothing. And it was just simply preserved by salt. Salt alone, so it wouldn't decay and so it wouldn't rot And so what Jesus is talking about here is the influence that we are to have as salt in the world, a preserving influence. Now, what should that look like? And when we take this metaphor that Jesus is saying that you are the salt of the earth, what is he implying by this? Well, one thing that he's saying is that we live in a world that is rotting, it is corrupt, and it's decaying. So you are the salt of the earth to be a preservative in the world. And if the world around us is getting more and more wicked, then the presence of believers should slow down that wickedness, should be preserving this world to an extent that we are slowing down the wickedness that happens. Just a simple illustration that if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've experienced this. You've probably walked into a crowd of, of workmates or other people at school or various uh, locations that you're, you're going to, and they know that you're a Christian. They might be talking about something. They might be using foul language. They might be talking in sexually suggestive terms, telling bad jokes or whatever the case is, and you show up and it stops. Or perhaps you're with someone and having a conversation with a non-Christian and they, they might interject a swear word into their into the conversation and then they catch themselves and they say oh oh sorry and they start to apologize because they know that you are a believer so there is there's a small way in which you do hinder evil and wickedness that goes on in the world and again could you imagine if every christian pulled out of these worldly relationships every christian pulled out of their workplace because it's not a hundred percent christian workplace Every Christian pulled out of everything that they're involved in if it isn't 100% a Christian entity that they're, that they're doing this, uh, this work in. Could you imagine the, the effect that that would have? What would occur in various parts of our society? The effect that we have, the preserving effect that we have is necessary in this world. And so the world should notice a distinct difference in the way that we live. In the way that we live our lives, we give testimony to the saving grace of God that has occurred within our hearts, within our lives. And that should be evident. That work of God should be evident evident to those who are around us. In our marriages, it should be evident. In the way that we raise our children, it should be evident. How we engage with people on the work in the workplace should be evident. All the different spheres that we are involved in, it should be evident that we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he has done something in our hearts and that the salt is at work within us to have this effective preservation uh, going on within the different ways in which we influence people. So put yourself back in Jesus' day just for a minute. Okay, Along the shores of the Dead Sea, the Salt Sea, you would see all kinds of, uh, of salt that's all kind of conglomerated together and stuck together. Some of it even looks like ice. 
not icebergs, but ice, like along the water. And along the, the shore, you can see ice, or the, you can see the salt everywhere, especially on the southern part of the Dead Sea. And much of that salt has been contaminated. A lot of it has gypsum and other minerals that are in it, which makes it effectively useless. And so that's what we see Jesus talking about in the latter half of verse 13 here, when he's talking about it being thrown out. Not good for anything, but to be trampled underfoot. And so sometimes these batches of bad salt would get into a home and it would be discovered and they would get rid of it. But they wouldn't just throw it out the window. They wouldn't just kind of go out into their fields and just dump it, take a bucket and dump it. They would have to be careful about where they put it because even though it didn't have the potency of good, pure salt, it would still have a negative impact upon crops. And even as you read your New Testament, you know that in times of war, they would go to battle and they would might... uh, They might decimate a particular city. And then in the areas where they would grow crops, they would take salt and dump salt all over the area because that would have a deadening effect. It wasn't able to then produce crops from there because that salt had done that to it. And so what they would do is sometimes they would take these big blocks of salt and they'd be able to trim off and chip away at it. And then there would be pure salt inside and they could use that but they would have to take away all those contaminants, all those, all those chunks. They would have to pare that off and get to the good salt. And so it's important for us to realize here as we read this that Jesus is not talking about the loss of salvation. One of the basic principles of biblical interpretation is that we always interpret a difficult passage, an unclear passage, with a clear passage that really tells us explicitly what is going on. And so thankfully, the Bible is very clear and it tells us that a true believer cannot lose his or her salvation. That is a wonderful truth that we see in the Word of God. We see that all over the place, John 10, Romans 8, many other places. So I I trust that you do believe that as you are sitting here as Reformed people, that you believe uh, in that, that the Lord uh, has provided for us in such a way in which the salvation that he's given to us can never be taken away. But Christians can lose something. They can lose their effectiveness. They can lose and become tasteless, as we see here in this verse. We can lose our effectiveness, that preserving influence, that witness to the world for the kingdom of Christ. And in this world that is rotting and decaying, we need to make sure that we are getting rid of all of those contaminants, that we are pure salt, and that we do have that taste and that flavor to be able to to have that influence in this world because tasteless, contaminated salt is very ineffective. It's not going to do the job. It's, it's contaminated in these ways. And so, so a contaminated Christian, the, the saltless Christian, is the one who has stopped being salt, that pure salt, stopped having that influence, stopped standing out, stopped being merciful to others because they've forgotten how merciful God has been to them, stopped being a peacemaker and instead are argumentative and combative with people. You're no longer willing to endure persecution because you're living life for now, not for the hereafter. All of these different ways we see the Beatitudes coming out. And so maybe you are such that when you join those conversations that that we talked about earlier, that people don't change the conversation. They just continue talking in the way that they would have been whether you were there or not there because perhaps you've lost your saltiness as a believer. And so one 
particular way in which we want to wrap up here is how do we be salt? Just in our last few minutes here, how do we be salt of the earth? How do we be salt in this world? And we're going to look at the light of the world. We're going to look at that part uh, next week as we'll continue on through the, the talking about the Beatitudes here in the Sermon on the Mount. So how do we be salt? What does this really mean for us? How do we, how do we work at this? Well, we are salt. Jesus says we are salt. So it's not something where I want you to be salt. It's not something where if you keep on working at this, you're going to become salt. You are salt. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are salt. But what does this mean? We are salt. We are Really what it means is that we are to go back to verse 3 in this chapter and we are to begin where we started in the Christian life. That's really what it means. And if you're sitting here tonight and maybe you feel as though that you are not salty any longer, that you've lost that flavor, that you are tasteless at this particular time, what do you need to do? You need to go back to verse 3 in this passage. We need to see ourselves as we truly are, poor in spirit, mourning over sin, not proud but meek, hungering and thirsting after righteousness, being merciful, being merciful out of the grace and mercy God has shown to us and given to us, being peacemakers because we've made peace with God, and enduring patiently this persecution that is promised to us because we realize that the reward in heaven is far, far greater than anything that we could have here on this earth. And so maybe for some of us, these contaminants have encrusted around that pure salt. These contaminants have encrusted around your heart at this particular time. And it's time to get rid of those contaminants, that those weights, that sin that so easily entangles us, we need to pare all of those off and get back to the purity that is ours in the Beatitudes. We've lost our saltiness. What are we to do? We go back to the beginning. We begin again. We live the Christian life how we began to live the Christian life. We go right back to the beginning. We go back to basics. If you were on a particular sports team, you know that that is often a thing that coaches will do with a team that's struggling. They'll say, we've got to go back to the basics. We're going to do that next week. We're going to practice the basics. And that's truly what we need to do in the Christian life when things are going haywire, when we know we're not walking in a way that is pleasing and honoring our God, that we are being tasteless in this world where we are supposed to be salt. And we are to go back to the basics that we have here. We are to look around at the world around us and have that positive impact by being salt in this world. You are the salt of the earth, Jesus said. You are the salt of the earth. And so if you have those crusted on pieces of contaminated salt on you as the salt of the earth, then I would ask that you would chip those away, that you would do business with God even this night, that you would confess your sins and turn to him and trust him that he will have mercy upon you and forgive you. And we know that he will based on his promises. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Let's pray. Oh God, we do pray and ask that you would help us to be salt of the earth. We thank you that you've called us to be such, that you've commanded us to be such, that you have told us that we are such, and we ask that you would help us to be what you have what you have commanded here. So I pray for my brothers and sisters, especially those who would be struggling right now, that they truly would go back to the beginning, 
that they would go back to the basics, confessing their sins to you and knowing that you are a God who is faithful and just to forgive. So we thank you for your mercies to us. We pray that you would help us to be merciful, that you would help us to be salt of the earth. In Jesus' name, amen.